Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we come now to really the high point of our worship, and that is when we open to see the very words that you have given to us, the very words of God through the Scriptures, miraculously put in a book that we can literally hold in our hands. And so, Lord, as we look not only generally at the Word of God, but specifically this morning at words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth, we pray for attentive hearts. We pray that you would drive these truths deeply into our hearts so that we might never be the same again and we might be more like Christ until he comes. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Turn with me to John chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 12 and go through verse 15 this morning. And just as a brief review, in John 15 and 16, we've been, in, we've been examining the fact that following Christ has a cost to it. There is a price. Salvation, to be sure, is free, but to be associated with Christ comes at a great cost. And today, I want to look at one of these costs. We've looked at 11 so far. We want to look today at the cost of scriptural loyalty. The cost of scriptural loyalty. The cost of loyalty to the Bible. Most every local church or Christian school or parachurch organization They'll say, we are a Bible-believing church. We're a Bible-believing school. But how is that lived out in reality? Is it really true? What if you're teaching from the Bible and yet distorting just enough of it to deny the deity of Jesus Christ, such as the Bethel Church movement does? Or what if you take no stand whatsoever on any doctrinal position in the name of some sort of false unity or not offending people because they're paying money to the church, tuition to the school, or dues to an organization? Or what if perhaps you take a purely devotional view of Scripture, which is now devoid of discernment and follows the crowd after every best-selling book by the latest 20-something hotshot author who markets themselves as Christian authors? Does that mean, then, we are Bible-believing? Well, I would say it's very tempting to make the Bible palatable, to declaw the Bible, so to speak. But part of the cost of following Christ is a dedication to the Bible. It's a submission to the Bible. It's an elevation of the Scriptures. Now, I know that at Grace Bible Church, I'm preaching to the choir primarily, but I wonder if we can't always use a reminder of the awe and the regard we're to have for the Holy Word of God that your Bible never becomes a coffee table decoration but becomes the center of your life. The Lord Jesus himself certainly had a high regard for the Scriptures. They were the only source he ever quoted. And in our text today, he gives us what you might call a nuclear-powered doctrine of the bible it's nuclear powered in that there's a small amount of material but when it's split apart it explodes into this dynamic and robust theology of the scriptures and so we'll be taking apart this small little section to see this amazing doctrine of the bible look with me at john chapter 16 verse 12 and we'll read through verse 15 and the lord is speaking to his apostles just hours perhaps even minutes before his arrest I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So I have a very simple goal this morning. My goal is for us to be as loyal as possible to the revealed word of God at all costs. And just as a reminder, many believers throughout the centuries have given their lives for the truth of Scripture. This is not a theological argument only. This is a life and death matter. And so very simply, I want to give you some reasons for scriptural loyalty this morning. Some reasons for scriptural loyalty. The first reason for scriptural loyalty we'll call the triumph of Scripture. The triumph of Scripture. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you. Now, it's interesting that after three and a half years of being together constantly, on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus tells the apostles, I still have many things to say to you. 
But don't mistake this. This is not in the sense of Jesus saying, I wish I had time to say more. That's not what he's saying. He's already taught them every single thing he intended to teach them. In fact, look across the page at John 17, verse 4. In his high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He doesn't say, I wish I had done more. He did everything he was supposed to do. The rest of what he would teach them, though, is reserved for after his ascension into heaven. And what we have here is a definite promise of the finishing of the revelation of Scripture. This is a promise of the New Testament. That the New Testament would come, which would be penned through the apostles. The apostles were to the New Testament church what the prophets were to Old Testament Israel. The means through whom the written word of God would be given. Now, Jesus has already been very clear with the apostles that they are going to receive divine assistance. God is going to help them. John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Very clear promise of assistance. John 15, 26, and 27, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 19, Jesus promised them, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how, are you, to, how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So this is very clear. Divine assistance is coming. And after his ascension, Jesus would add to the ranks of the apostles and add to the ranks of the future writers of Scripture in the person of the Apostle Paul. And as an apostle, he rightly claimed direct revelation from Christ himself. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Very clear claim to divine revelation. So Jesus has given the apostles then the job of being the stewards, the the caregivers of the truth of the gospel. In fact, Paul affirmed this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The words of the apostles then are the words of God. In fact, Paul also said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, talking to this, this new little church with baby Christians in it, he said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so spanning a time of, of just about 50 years, beginning with the writing of the book of James and ending with the writing of the book of Revelation, God gave us the New Testament, either through the apostles or through their appointed representatives. But this in no way implies that somehow the New Testament now takes precedence over or in any way changes or downplays the the Old Testament. We, We don't say we're a New Testament church. We say we are a Bible church. In fact, I could spend all morning on the incredible necessity of the Old Testament. The, the New Testament makes no sense without the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us our context. We could, for example, talk about Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, which says that the law of the Lord, the Old Testament, is perfect. Or how about anywhere from Deuteronomy 4 through, through 11, which constantly extols the virtues of God's word. How about Psalm 119, which gives 176 reasons to love the Word of God as revealed in the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament always, 100% of the time, affirms the value and the integrity of the Old Testament as Scripture, even as the New Testament claims itself to be Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy five seventeen and 18, the Apostle Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Listen to this. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is quoting scripture from Deuteronomy 25 and Luke chapter 10, verse 7, showing that they have equal authority. Or how about 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16? Peter says, 
Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Listen to this as they do the other scriptures. In other words, you read Paul's letters. Those are scriptures. Here's the triumph of scripture. The triumph of Scripture is that it is utterly indestructible. It cannot be destroyed. Divine revelation is not something transitory. It's not something passing. It's not something that can be missed. It's not something that is somehow unavailable. The truth of God in written form has been, as Jude verse 3 says, once for all delivered to the saints. It means it's here to stay and God uses his church as part of his preservation of the truths of Scripture. It's partly uh, us that he uses. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That, that was his job. And you do that job as well. You know how? Simply by knowing and believing the Bible, you are part of the preservation process to some degree. And by the way, it's not just that copies of the Bible will always be available, although the Bible still continues to be the best-selling book of all time. That, that's not the point. It's that the content of the Bible, the message of the Bible, the prophecies of the Bible, the predictions of the Bible, they can't be altered, they can't be railroaded, they can't be railroaded, they can't be hacked, they can't be hijacked. You know what's great about a written word is that nobody can hack into it. It's there. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, I know if you pay attention to the news at all, the, the Bible is a joke in the news. Christians are caricatures of a time long gone, and so it's natural for us to worry about the Bible being defined out of existence or as it seems to be completely ignored and denigrated in our society, or as we're probably headed toward a time where it becomes illegal to use the Bible as any sort of authority. But can I say this? Don't worry about the Bible. It's here to stay long after those who try to get rid of it are dust in the ground. It will be here. Let me give you a second reason for scriptural loyalty. We'll call this one the power of Scripture. The power of Scripture Still in verse 12, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This wasn't the moment for the disciples to receive the fullness of revelation. Certainly at this moment, they were overcome with a sense of dread, a sense of sorrow. Their world is crumbling before their eyes. Jesus is leaving them and they are sorrowful. Verse 6 tells us this. But these are the men who would write the New Testament scriptures concerning the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the current ministry of Christ, and they weren't even yet grasping that these things are going to take place, much less be able to fully comprehend the significance of all those important events. And the Spirit of God would need to come to the earth to inaugurate the church age, at which point the disciples would be empowered internally and all the promises of divine assistance would then be upon them. I think we tend to underestimate the power of words in general, there's a reason that something called propaganda exists, that you say something enough times and people will begin to believe it. But I think we can even more gravely underestimate the power of the words of God. How about this? The very first display of the power of God in all of the Bible is through his words. Genesis 1-3, and God said... Let there be light, and there was light. Throughout the rest of the creation account, God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And nothing that was spoken into existence came about without God speaking. He speaks things into existence from nothing. Who does that? He spoke time into existence. He spoke space into existence. He spoke matter into, his exist into existence. And then he spoke everything in it into existence. All with words. In fact, Romans 4.17 says that God calls. This is a word that means to verbally summon, to speak to something. He calls into existence the things that do not exist. And if you don't think that's a big deal, then try it sometime. Scripture is, is absolutely full of God's words as the outworking of his power. Psalm 33.6 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 148, verse 5, he commanded and they were created. Hebrews 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. By the way, side note here, the New Testament affirms in John 1, Colossians 3, Hebrews 1, that God created all things through the words of the Son of God, through Jesus Christ. But not only did the words of God create all things, they control all things now. Psalm 29 is all about the power of the voice of God, the spoken words of God. Seven times in that psalm, it speaks of the great power of the voice of God and ruling his creation. And I think verse 4 says it best, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty, meaning everything that God speaks happens. And we haven't even gotten past inanimate objects yet. That's just when God speaks to things. How about when he speaks to or concerning humanity? God speaks judgment on rebellious sinners in a way that would make your knees go weak. In Isaiah's prophecy, the coming judgment on Assyria, beginning in Isaiah 30, verse 30, listen to the might of God's word. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. The voice of God's judgment is accompanied by music. That's a big deal. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre is deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. But in equal power, God speaks grace upon those that he set his affection. In Genesis 18, verse 14, after God promised a miraculous child to Abraham and Sarah, He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Literally in Hebrew, it's not, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is is any word too hard for the Lord? Is there any word he can't speak and make it happen? And of course, Jesus, as fully God, had the power to speak grace. In fact, some already figured this out. When the centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant, he asked that Jesus not personally come to his home, but only Luke 7, verse 7. You, all you have to do is what? Say the word. And in verse 8 of Luke 7, the soldier said, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And through the New Testament, God has spoken grace in power. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God for salvation. This is why I love preaching the gospel, because it's got a guaranteed nuclear-powered engine behind it. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in what? In power. Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, literally empower you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2.16 speaks of this power. Paul said that he was holding fast to the word of life. And by the way, future judgment will come about through the power of the spoken word of God. 2 Peter 3.7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Scripture is powerful. Let me give you a third reason for scriptural loyalty. The inspiration of scripture. The inspiration of scripture. Verse 13, Jesus continues, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Jesus is promising that their words will not merely be their own words, but they'll be divine words. Now, the English Standard Version of 2 Timothy 3.16, our, our really classic verse on inspiration, 
The ESV says all Scripture is breathed out by God. And that's a good translation. Other translations say all Scripture is inspired by God. This is God. This is where we get the idea of the inspiration of Scripture. But it's more literally breathed out by God. God breathed. It's a Greek word that's unique that literally means God breathed. And so this is a term that's stuck, but it needs to be defined. Inspired isn't the idea of emotional inspiration. As one of my favorite pastors said, it's not that Paul saw a sunset and then wrote Romans. It's not that sort of inspiration. But it's the breathing out by God of his own words through human authors. That the Spirit of God superintended human authorship He created an identity between the divine word and the human word, and the divine word overcame the human word, and it was from God. Now, there are some places in Scripture where God has simply dictated the very words to be written. Exodus 34, God dictated to Moses the words of the law. Jeremiah 36 gives an example of God simply dictating to Jeremiah the words of God. The passage we just read this morning in Revelation 3, both Revelation 2 and 3, contain the dictated words of Jesus Christ to the seven churches. But more normally, God chose the writers of Scripture who wrote what they chose to write through their own human qualities, their own personalities, their own situations coming through very clearly. But it's not that the, this is an important distinction. It's not that the writers were inspired. It's that the writings were inspired. And they used many different genres, narrative, law, poetry, didactic teaching, prophecy. Every type of literature is contained in the Bible. But what's the extent of inspiration? How pervasive is the inspiration of Scripture? Do we say that the Word of God is contained in the Bible, or do we say that the Word of God is the Bible? Well, I think the latter is more appropriate. The inspiration of Scripture is pervasive. It's total We just read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, everything in Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. This is what theologians call plenary inspiration, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Like a plenary session at a conference you might go to, it means everyone is there. But not only is all Scripture inspired, we would say that the individual words of Scripture are inspired. Not just the ideas, Theologians call this verbal inspiration. Peter did not say in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the basic ideas of eternal life. What did he say? You have the words of eternal life. And interestingly, the Greek word for words means words. It's the plural of word. And in fact, the emphasis on that plural, the words of God, it absolutely saturates the New Testament. Jesus declared in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my what? Words will not pass away. Revelation 1, 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Matthew 5, 18 gets even more specific. Jesus said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What is he saying? That's a technical term for the smallest marking in Greek and the smallest marking in Hebrew. None of them will. What is a dot? It's a dot. It's little. And he said, not even that will go away. How about this? 1 Corinthians 2.13. For we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Many, many other places, at least 10 of the 27 New Testament books affirm the inspiration of every single word of Scripture. Now, this is about the time when a smart aleck says, Well, the Bible claims inspiration for itself, and that's circular reasoning. An outside source must confirm the inspiration of Scripture. You need somebody outside the Bible to confirm that the Bible is inspired. Okay, what source would you recommend? Any ideas? Well, how about about the opinions of mankind? Great. Fallen sinners who can't understand the Bible outside of the Spirit of God are supposed to judge the Bible. You know what we would do given the choice? We would get rid of the Bible. You want to know why? Because it exposes who you really are. And we don't want that. Uh, How about science to confirm the Bible? The same science which used leeches stuck to your body to treat diseases as recently as the late 19th century 
How about the same science which can't figure out where everything came from, so they decided one day that absolutely nothing went boom, and then absolutely everything was created? How scientific is that? A five-year-old wouldn't believe that. Trying to use an outside source to confirm the Bible is like a bug telling me, prove your power. Okay. There's only one source which continually confirms the inspired nature of the Bible, and that's God himself. God himself confirms the inspiration of his word in the hearts and the minds of the countless millions who know God through his word. Let me give you a fourth reason for scriptural loyalty. We'll call this one the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Verse 13 continues, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. All the truth. Now, the question is sometimes asked, how do we get the 27 books of the New Testament that we have now? And the default attempt at that point is to try to trace the history of the development of what theologians call the New Testament canon, C-A-N-O-N. It just means measure. The canon of Scripture are the accepted books. And in some senses, though, trying to just look at the history really isn't a fruitful direction to go. It's possible, but it's complex. Because now, what does that do? That places history as the authoritative factor instead of the supernatural divine intervention of God himself. But we can dispel one common myth. And that is the myth that somehow some church councils got together to vote on which books should be included in the New Testament. That never happened. Now, to be certain, writings such as the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas, not Iscariot, they were excluded, they were excluded, but the church never saw itself as having the power or the authority to decide which books were Scripture. So how did we get them? Well, instead, what happened was the church over the course of a couple of centuries unanimously recognized the 27 books as authoritative. They recognized them. Why? Because that was the work of the Spirit of God, not the work of academia or scholarship. For example, in the first centuries of the church, there were massive theological battles raging. There were battles even over the Trinity. There were battles over the person of Christ. And there were some minor differences among some local churches about which, churches, which books were to be included in the New Testament. But compared to all the other theological debates, there was almost zero debate over which books were to be included. And by the 4th century, when Bishop Athanasius published a list of books accepted in his church, the 27 New Testament books we have now, and he sent that list all over the known world, how many people disagreed? Zero. Interestingly, even traditions which sharply disagree with each other, Roman Catholicism, Orthodox Christianity, Eastern Orthodox, the one thing we agree on, 27 books in the New Testament, same ones. So how did it happen? How do we get the New Testament as it stands now? I think it's actually a lot more simple than we make it. Here's what happened. John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. When you, as a spirit-indwelt Christian, read a book of the New Testament, you resonate with the very voice of God. And when you read something else, you say, oh, that's nice, but that's not Scripture. And you know it. So in a certain sense, how simple it was to simply stand in a worship service and have somebody read for the very first time the book of Romans. And imagine the tears streaming down the faces of the people as they say, we know in our heart of heart of hearts we have just heard the voice of God. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the true people of God knew the voice of God when they read it. And by the way, when God speaks, He's simultaneously assuring us that He is speaking. We don't have to guess. So there's no missing books of the Bible. There's no 5th Corinthians there's no book after Revelation. There's no book of maps, even though maps are in your Bible. With the coming of Christ, His atonement, His resurrection, His ascension, the coming of the Spirit of God, the writing of the final book of the Bible, which neatly ties up all of redemptive history, the canon of Scripture is closed. And the words of Jesus fulfilled 
that the Spirit of God would lead the apostles into all the truth. Your Bible is complete. But just how sufficient are the completed scriptures? Some might feel they've exposed weaknesses of the Bible by claiming that the Bible doesn't tell us everything about science or history or dentistry or plumbing or shoe repair or anything else you can think of. But that argument's powered by the wrong assumption that the Bible claims to have knowledge of everything. The Bible never claims that. The Bible even commands in 2 Timothy 2.23 have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. But what the Bible does claim is that it encompasses, it absolutely includes from first word to the last, all of the divine words which are sufficient for eternal life. Every single one. Let me give you some examples. The Bible doesn't tell you everything there is to know about plumbing, but it does tell you everything you need to know about how to glorify God and properly reflect Christ if you're a plumber. The Bible never claims to be a science textbook, but everything it says about science is accurate and it tells you in no uncertain terms who created all the phenomena that science studies. The Bible never claims to explain every physical disease in detail, but it tells you who and how to trust in the midst of disease. It tells you how and why to pray in the midst of disease. And it promises you that as a Christian, someday there will be no more disease. That's good enough for me. But even those arguments, I think, are somewhat defensive. Let's go on the offensive for a minute. The Bible is the sole source for knowing the origin of all things. The Bible is the sole source of specific information about God. Yes, creation, the general revelation of God, tells us something of God, but it's meant to push us to the Bible. The Bible is the sole source of information about the sinfulness of man and God's requirement of repentance from sin and humbly coming by faith to God. The Bible is the sole source of information on what a God-honoring church is supposed to look like, what the, the roles of the shepherds, the roles of the sheep are to be. The Bible is the sole source of information on what a God-honoring marriage looks like. The Bible is the sole source of information concerning the eternal destiny of all who will reject Christ and the eternal blessing of all who would receive Him. Speaking of Christ, the Bible is the sole source of information which tells us everything we must know about the Son of God. Let me ask you a question. What do you know about Jesus that you did not learn from the Bible? Nothing. Nothing. Despite the fact that about once a year, Time Magazine or U.S. News and World Report puts Jesus on their cover saying, we've uncovered some tablet that tells us something new about Jesus. And then they translate it and says, he was in Nazareth. Ooh, new information. It's nothing new. It's all in the Bible. The Bible is the sole source of information on how to understand bad things which happen in my life and how the sovereignty of God changes our view of suffering. The Bible is the sole source of information on precisely what happens to the believer when he dies. The Bible is the sole source of information on the, on the future coming kingdom of Christ on earth. And how about this? The Bible is the sole source of all hope. Did you know that? Romans fifteen four, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, listen to this, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Would you say that Scripture is sufficient? I've bet my soul on it, and you have too. Let me give you a fifth reason for scriptural loyalty. We'll call this one the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. The Holy Spirit is representing the mind, the wishes, the intentions, the content, the words of the triune God. The Bible carries the full weight of authority of God in His fullness. Now, given what we've already talked about so far, I think the authority of Scripture is already essentially proven. <clears throat> whatever God does, He does by His Word, and whatever God does, the Word does. But what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is essentially a dialogue from God to mankind. And the course of history is essentially man's response to God's word under the divine sovereignty of God. When man disobeys God's word, there is a curse. When man obeys God's word, there is blessing. When God declares whatever God declares is right, inherently 
And it's inherently authoritative. Why? Because God said it. I don't need to prove God's word is authoritative. It's already self-proving because God's the one who said it. And by the way, the authority of Scripture isn't some intellectual argument to be argued in a classroom between theologians. There's teeth behind the Bible's claim to be authoritative. The eternal destiny of every human being will be measured by Scripture. That's teeth. That's authority. The saved will be measured in that they agreed with God that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but they received the free gift of salvation offered in Christ as revealed where? In the Bible. And the lost, the unsaved, will be measured in that they attempted to disagree with God and tried to redefine sin and tried to sit in judgment over the Bible when in fact the Bible sits in judgment over them. Can I put it this way? Although the Bible is a dialogue from God to man, it's a one-way dialogue. The Bible is not a discussion. The Bible is a declaration. Look at verse 13. The end of verse 13. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Declare, declare, declare. We don't get to reinterpret scripture it's a declaration you either agree with it or you're judged those are the two options the bible says for example that any religion which despises the name of christ by making him merely a man is false and it will lead its followers to hell well i don't agree with that the bible couldn't care less whether you agree with it or not The Bible says that unrepentant sexual deviancy will incur God's wrath and never asks the opinions of man. Never says, "Uh, hang on a minute, let me test the winds here. What do you think? The Bible says that unrepentant adultery, verbal abuse, lying, substance abuse, cheaters, thieves will not be part of God's future kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6. That's a declaration. The Bible says that repentance is necessary for salvation. That's a declaration. The Bible says mankind is incapable of choosing God, but God must choose you. That's a declaration. And the Bible says that Jesus alone is the way to the Father and to a heavenly future. It's a declaration. Look, you can argue all you want, but Scripture will be vindicated because when God comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, essentially, he will gather everybody together and he'll say, okay, two groups over here, all those who didn't believe my word over here, all those who did. And then judgment will come to this side and glory will come to this. It will be by the word of God that all humanity is judged. And someone might say, well, I don't accept that the Bible is authoritative. The theological answer is so What does that have to do with anything? What what does what you accept have to do with anything at all? You have no authority. God has all the authority. Let me give you a sixth reason for scriptural loyalty. We'll call this one the inerrancy of scripture. The inerrancy of scripture. Verse 13, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The things that are to come. Okay, now, the coming Holy Spirit isn't merely going to give spiritual platitudes and proverbs and advice for daily living. The Spirit of God, through the apostles, will pin actual prophecy. He'll finish what he began in the Old Testament and give the prophetic future in its fullness. Now, Deuteronomy 18.22 explains that a true prophet of God, of whom the apostles are now the successors, they have a 100% success rate. And so the word of God is inerrant. It doesn't just mean, by the way, that the Bible doesn't have errors. It means that the Bible is incapable of having errors. It's not possible for the Bible to contain errors. The Bible asserts its own inerrancy. Just a couple of examples. The book of Psalms asserts inerrancy. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. That's an assertion of inerrancy. Jesus asserts the inerrancy of Scripture. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That is a declaration of inerrancy. Now, primarily, inerrancy is expressed by the obvious idea that if God is true, then the word that he gives must be true. 
that if God is all-powerful, then mere humans can't mess up the process of God giving us a true word. If he's all-powerful, we don't need to worry about the fact that there are human authors involved. We need the scripture to be inerrant. It contains the knowledge of how to avoid eternal punishment and how to enjoy eternal life. How discouraging would it be if I preached a sermon entitled, Why the Bible is 99% Accurate? That's a little scary, because what if that 1% is kind of important? And the skeptics, they want to keep throwing in our faces, oh, but the Bible was just written by fallible humans, which in their minds automatically makes it full of mistakes. Okay, if human authorship is the main variable, how is it that the Bible has over 40 authors writing over a period of 1,600 years, most of whom never met each other, and yet they wrote a unified story, complete from beginning to end, utterly and completely consistent with itself, historically and theologically? Uh, to be honest with you, the human authorship of Scripture is what makes it so remarkable. It's what makes it so miraculous. How do we know the Bible is inerrant? Two simple ways. God is truth and therefore cannot produce anything untrue. God is truth and therefore he can't produce anything untrue. But the simple second way is that no one in 3,500 years has been able to demonstrate one single proof of one single evidence of anything less than perfection. When somebody says there's contradictions in the Bible, just say, show me one. Nobody's been able to do it for 3,500 years. You probably won't be the first. By the way, in our text right now, Jesus has promised the apostle revelation, the apostle's revelation about the past, the words of Jesus, the present, all the truth, and the future, things that are to come. It is an inerrant word, and you can count on it. Let me give you a seventh reason for scriptural loyalty. The divine word of scripture. The divine word of scripture. Verse 14. He will glorify me for he will take with his mind and declare it to you. Now it sounds a little redundant to say the divine word of scripture. But the divine word to whom I'm referring is the word made flesh. Jesus Christ himself. The New Testament presents us with an interesting puzzle. A very difficult puzzle to be sure. The ultimate revelation of God in person is explicitly called the Word of God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 1 John 1, 1. Jesus is called the Word of life. Hebrews 1, verse 3 tells us that Christ upholds the universe by the Word of His power. And that's, how do you explain that? Well, I think rather than trying to explain what is fairly inexplicable, the connection between Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and the Scriptures, the Word of God, I think it's better to acknowledge that as a human being, you're cornered. You're treed, so to speak. You're confronted with a truth that you can't risk assaulting. That if you dishonor Scripture, you dishonor Christ. And if you dishonor Christ, you dishonor Scripture. Or to put it this way, if you disobey Scripture, you disobey Christ. If you disown Scripture, you disown Christ. If you disbelieve Scripture, you disbelieve Christ. You cannot get away from the connection. In fact, Jesus himself made this connection. And listen to his warning. Mark eight thirty eight. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Did you catch that? You cannot say, I love Jesus, I just don't believe the Bible. Nor can you say, I like the Bible, I just don't love Jesus. It's a package deal. Faith in Christ, belief in the Bible, go together. In fact, look at the interconnectedness of all three members of the Trinity in the communication of the Word of God. Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take with his mind and declare it to you. Father, Son, Spirit, all in one verse here. And this is really important for us. This, this verse right here tells us why you can trust the Bible that you hold in your hand. Let me show you. It gives us confidence in the unbroken transmission of Scripture into these reliable translations. Because here's the logic, according to verse 15, if the Father has perfectly conveyed the Word to the Son, who has perfectly conveyed the Word to the Spirit, who has perfectly conveyed the Word to the Apostles, 
then it stands to reason that that unbroken transmission of Scripture has continued. Well, there's four little verses. It's a nuclear-powered little section that Jesus gives on divine revelation. Now, given that Jesus Christ has been, I think, fairly clear, he's made a definitive, no doubt about it, statement on the nature of Scripture. There's some important implications for us as believers in Christ. I started off asking the question, what does it mean to say we're Bible-believing? Well, I want to give you some general church-wide implications under which we stand together. These are things that we ought to stand together on. Just very simply, three of them. First, we are to proclaim a biblical gospel only. We are to proclaim a biblical gospel only. The gospel is that God is holy. And because of man's sin, man is morally and physically separated from God. Every human being has sinned and rendered himself now guilty before holy God with the coming penalty of certain eternal death and separation from God. But in love, God sent his son to die on a cross to pay the judicial penalty for our sin. And now Christ has offered to any who would repent and humbly ask for mercy to exchange his death for yours, to exchange his life for yours, such that God the Father would now view you as completely righteous as Christ is. That is the one, that is the only gospel. There are no other alternatives. The gospel is not, would you ask Jesus into your heart? Find that in scripture, it's not there. The gospel is not, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Tell that to the thief on the cross. The gospel is that which is solely revealed in the Bible. There's a second implication. We must test experience and practice against the scripture. We must test experience and practice against the scripture. This was the failing of the Pentecostal church movement in the early 20th century. They truly believed that the gift of tongues was returning, that they would evangelize the world through the gift of human languages. They rightly believed from Scripture that the gift of tongues was the ability to supernaturally speak human languages. But they failed. They failed in that it didn't work. And so they shifted then to make tongues now an ecstatic worship experience. Because how do you shut down an entire denomination? And today, there's still misleading people that experience dictates truth instead of truth dictating experience. And there's a third implication. And this is more for maybe our remote listeners listening online. We are to insist on biblical preaching which challenges the listener to Christ-likeness. We are to insist on biblical preaching which challenges the listener to Christ-likeness. Preaching which explains the Bible preaching which applies the Bible and doesn't treat the Bible as a devotional guide, but rather as the living, breathing, sharper than a sword, word of the one true living God. And can I say this? If those in the pulpit are not preaching the word of God, theologically, systematically, leave. Because you have unfaithful shepherds. Why would you poison your own soul with human truth instead of feeding your soul with biblical truth? Well, I, I think I'll keep going to this restaurant even though they keep on dripping poison into the food. I, I just like the way it tastes. No, you must have food that is true food indeed and that is only scripture. I think in some ways we've lost touch with the idea that to believe the Bible costs you. It's part of the cost of following Christ. And I want to get back in touch with that idea. In the mid-1500s, there was, in the early days of the Great Reformation, there was a priest. He's a Catholic priest. His name was Jean Rebeck. And as the Catholic priest, Jean Rebeck began reading the Bible, he came to a new belief. First of all, he came to true faith in Jesus Christ. And he also came to believe that the authority of Scripture was the only authority. So he was arrested. He was tried by the Roman Catholic Church. Because he came to believe in the sole authority of Scripture, he rejected the Catholic claim to sit in equal authority with Scripture. He was challenged in his trial on the Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Christ, their belief that Mary was sinless from her conception. Here was Rabeck's answer, quote, You have as the foundation of your belief an explanation based on the human brain. As for me, I have the word of God. Judge who is most wise, God or you. 
Rabek was ceremonially defrocked. He was excommunicated. He was sentenced to be burned at the stake. And on the day of his death, the executioner first cut out Rabek's tongue. Then he suspended him by his wrists for half an hour while the wood for the fire was ignited. And with blood still streaming out of his mouth, Rabek was heard to the best of his ability, mouthing and voicing the words of Psalm 79 as the fire killed him. And yet today, churches, Christian schools, parachurch organizations are trying desperately to make the Bible palatable for everyone. How dare they? How dare they? Revelation 19 shows us the glorious scene of the Lord Jesus Christ preparing to return to earth. His robe is dipped in the blood of the enemies that he's about to defeat. And listen to this majestic declaration. Revelation 19:13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Someone to be feared. Don't mess with the word of God. Don't mess with the Word of God. I have on my Bible printed not the word Bible, but the Word of God. May it be that for you as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we have a duty. We have an obligation. As those who are the ones called by Christ, the ones saved by the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating us, we have an obligation to accurately represent you and how sad it is when one who claims to be a Christian would question, denigrate, put down, avoid, rebel against the very word of God which represents your mind, your heart, all that you would have us to know about yourself. The depth of the riches of the glories of God are revealed in these these pages, Lord, that 10,000 lifetimes wouldn't be enough to fully grasp. And so, Lord, I pray for each person here who claims Christ that we would stand true for the word. That when in our homes, perhaps we hear a false gospel from a guest, that we would stand up for the gospel. That when in our workplace we hear a false gospel based on a false word, that we would stand for the word of God. That when a large organization claiming to be a church denigrates the deity of Jesus Christ and yet still opens their Bible, that we would call them out on that. And that in our own lives, with anticipation, with joy, with eagerness, we would hold a Bible in our hands and open it, knowing that we are literally about to hear from God. Give us that great excitement and joy in the word. Help us to count the cost, no matter what it takes, to defend your glorious word. And we thank you and we praise you in the name of Christ, the word of God. Amen.